Good evening, and welcome to The Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. This podcast is an entertainment podcast. The Midnight Owl considers shut-ins people worth listening to. It's a lifestyle that doesn't seem so horrific anymore with the internet and delivery services. If it weren't for my dog, I might actually consider it. This week's script was written by Kat and tailored by me, your humble host. This week's episode is Uncontacted Peoples. Meddling is what we do. It's what defines us. Meddling gave us fire and tools and civilization and the keys to the universe. Fingers will get burnt along the way. Yes, that's the way of it. Alastair Reynolds A scorpion asks a frog to carry him over a river. The frog is afraid of being stung and says no. The scorpion argues that if it did so, both would sink and the scorpion would drown. The frog then agrees, but midway across the river, the scorpion does indeed sting the frog, dooming them both. The frog with his dying breath asks why the scorpion stung him, knowing the consequence. The scorpion replies, I couldn't help it. It is my nature. This is the fable of the scorpion and the frog. Fingers will get burnt. Limbs will be lost. Populations will deplete. Entire civilizations will collapse. Well, that escalated quickly. This week's episode is about the slippery slope inspired by the stories we have of humanity's failure in contacting uncontacted peoples. To meddle or not to meddle, that is the question. Perception is everything when talking about something as subjective as belief, ideals, or morality. Bear in mind that this discussion is told from the privilege of a first world perspective. I am biased by a society that educates me, medical help that is readily available, and an abundance of food. The semantics of the term uncontacted in the context of describing encounters with people possess an evident paradox. The anthropological category uncontacted people is contradictory to the study of the same. All uncontacted peoples are only known to exist as a result of contact however distant or brief. Often overhead observations by people traveling in airplanes above remote regions wherein reside the recluse societies. Regardless, if we can see them, they can see us. And this dissolves the veil between being unaware and being exposed to contemporary technology and globalized society. More accurately, those referred to as uncontacted people can be better described as isolated peoples. This discussion will use the two terms interchangeably, with this statement having addressed the obvious oxymoron of describing contact with uncontacted peoples. According to Survival International, a global movement for tribal peoples, somewhere around a hundred or so called uncontacted peoples still exist globally. Estimates vary with no count having claimed to more accurate data than the others. 
For example, Brazil claims to have 77 uncontacted peoples living in the Amazon rainforest. Well, National Geographic claims there are 84. Of course, we don't know for sure. The idea that a specific number cannot be assigned to the existence of uncontacted peoples is the only logical answer as we cannot count the existence of potentially non-existent peoples. Consider this statement by Times author Jeffrey Kluger. It's not entirely fair to say that a single hug killed 4,500 people, but it's not entirely wrong either. Out of context, it's a startling statistic supporting the very real risks of stranger danger. A single hug killed 4,500 people. 4,500. Maybe hold on to that tidbit for the next family reunion. When you're told to be pleasant to comply with social norms with the people you only see once a year. When that awkward uncle approaches with outstretched arms, you have proof that the old saying, Being nice never killed anyone, is a bold-faced lie we tell each other. The hug in question occurred in 1910. A Brazilian military engineer devised a plan to make contact with the Nambiquara, an isolated tribe tucked away in the Amazon forest. Estimated as a population of about 5,000. Over a 14-month period, the military man nourished a fruit and vegetable garden that he hoped would lure the Nambiquara from the forest. It is said that the chief of the tribe and six other members showed themselves, allowing the military man to embrace them. Within three generations, the tribe counted just 550 members. 10% of its size compared to its pre-contact population. The 90% death toll is attributed to illness against which the Nambiquara had zero immunity. Influenza, whooping cough, and the common cold. These are communicable diseases transferred by contact. While this case is told as an unintentional consequence of contact with an isolated people, it is reminiscent of germ warfare, which was not an unknown concept by the 1900s. In North America during the 1700s, two centuries earlier, the British were conducting germ warfare against the Aboriginal tribes. Smallpox blankets being a clear and effective example. As we slip down the slope from curiosity to a contact-induced crisis, I wonder where the best place to lay down a spike strip to stop the wheels from turning is. A line in the sand that must not be crossed. There are safety concerns to be considered on both sides. It seems like simple, straightforward logic. Those who know better ought to do better. But then the question remains, who could possibly know better? It's a paradox. Our genetic makeup is the same. What is good and evil should be innate and true and translate to any relation that we have. But we aren't children anymore, listener. We are old enough to know that the universe is made up of infinite levels of gray. Morality based on perception. Perception based on cultural and parental influence. Perhaps the best advocates are the aboriginal peoples that have been colonized. Those most recently have been brought out of their way of life and into our modern civilization. There are organizations of indigenous rights activists advocating for the isolated people's rights to self-determination. A prominent player since 1969 is Survival International. Survival International's vision is a world where tribal peoples are respected 
as contemporary societies and their human rights are protected. Fighting for tribal people's survival, they advertise their efforts as including the following activities. Stopping loggers, miners, and oil companies from destroying tribal lands, lives, and livelihoods across the globe. Lobbying governments to recognize indigenous land rights. Documenting and exposing the atrocities committed against tribal people and taking direct action to stop them. Survival International accepts monetary donations to support their movement. Interestingly, though, on their website, it is written, We reject money from the governments and shady corporations so our integrity is never compromised. Which I read as, To keep our conscience clean, we do not accept dirty money. Robin Hood and people trying to buy a clean conscience will have to look elsewhere. This doesn't feel jaded to me. Just wise enough to look around and know that they have to be up front if they want to keep their hands clean. In the business world, they say, there is no such thing as a free lunch. I've yet to make up my mind completely on whether it's best to contact isolated peoples or not. Either way, I respect Survival International and might just defer to them as the experts in this matter. To me, this is a thought experiment that I can't quite figure out. It's a puzzle that has so many dimensions I might never, but I doubt I'll ever be able to fully put this subject down. Some suggest that intervention, to involve ourselves for the sake of altering an anticipated course of events like the extinction of a tribe, is a compassionate justification for contacting and exploring at-risk societies as a preventative measure against all the threats to which we are aware may negatively impact a population, and we do so with knowledge of the detriment of our own presence and what that may impose. To save them, we want to see them and to study them. Curiosity has consequences. Consider all those dead cats. Regardless and recklessly, humans have a tendency of poking and prodding and probing, making a production of the unfamiliar, exposing anything isolated or remote. We insist on shining light into the darkness. There's a reason King Kong chained and on display in a New York freak show is such an evocative scene that never left us since its 1930s introduction. Made and remade over the years, we remind ourselves of a lesson we have learned, but can never commit to. Because of our nature. Our nature as humans says that we cannot leave stones unturned or well enough alone. We meddle. How can we be sure it is well when alone unless we are present to assess and evaluate its wellness? Our experimentation is limited only by our imaginations. Desmond Morris's book titled The Human Zoo offers a comparison of cities to zoos. The first is home to human inhabitants. The latter is home to animal inhabitants. However, they share the same fundamental structure. In both a city and a zoo, the inhabitants are provided access to their basic needs, food and shelter exchanging vast wilderness for a limited amount of physical space. Did we trade our freedom? Is the ink still wet on the social contract, or have things gone too far? 
The idea being that cities and zoos are safer places than the wilderness, increasing the odds of a species' survival, protecting against extinction, power in numbers, minimal exposure to unfavorable elements, etc. Simply, insurance against a population's checks and balances. Preventative measures against the effectiveness of Darwinism, which suggests that survival favors the fittest. In cities, people can live their entire lifetime in conditions that would be entirely unfit for survival in the wild, by the grace of modern medicine and aids to daily living. Morris asserts that both cities and zoos are captivity. Both are unnatural environments and both are problematic to their inhabitants' ability to develop healthy social relationships. Citing isolation and boredom as the impetus for the development of behaviors less likely to occur in a more natural habitat. Possibly the most famous line of Morse's critique was, The zoo animal in a cage exhibits all these abnormalities that we know so well from our human companions. Clearly then, the city is not a concrete jungle. It is a human zoo. Bob Marley laments in the lyrics from the song Concrete Jungle, No chains around my feet, but I am not free. I know I am bound here in captivity. Concrete Jungle, you name it, we got it. Without the creature comforts of contemporary civilizations that keep us in the sheltered complacency to which we have grown accustomed in the first world nations, death would be more frequent. Hell, we might not be facing overpopulation, the depletion of resources at rates as rapid as they are, or the dramatic disparity between the have and have-not nations. But pull that back and play devil's advocate for a moment. Having painted a picture of cities as unnatural environments responsible for the destruction and decay of humanity's fitness for survival, an easily made retort is that urban congregation of civilization was a natural progression from tribal times to agrarian times and so on, to where we are today. As such, city life is as natural a state of being for humans at this time as any evolution is a natural phenomenon in all of nature, with all of the baser needs sought to in a city. Shelter from the weather, protection from predators, and food humanity can spend more time on creative pursuits like philosophy and art. Has humanity simply evolved past a natural state and any comparison to one is like comparing apples to watermelons? Like a virus we evolve. Reproducing, mutating, adapting, developing ways to dig in deeper, to safe places for the sake of survival. Spreading out to consume as much habitable land as we can. Divide and conquer. We go forth and multiply. When contemplating the invasive and tenacious ways that our species compares to a virus, that quiet voice in the back of my head always whispers the same thing. Either the host kills the virus, or the virus kills the host. Either way, the virus dies. There is no life without the earth. If contemporary civilization is captivity, and anthropologists are acutely aware, those who study human behavior in societies of the past and present, one can imagine the fascination they may feel towards isolated peoples in contemporary times. Those of humanity who remain free, the unicorns. 
How do you feel about unicorns? While some feel whimsical imagining a unicorn sighting thrilled to witness the mystery and magic they represent, others would for sure sharpen their scalpels to dissect the beast in an aim of scientific explanation for the mythical creature's horn. What is it made out of? And what makes them sparkle? Our politics have been boiled down to catchphrase rhetoric. Even when talking about unicorns, I hear one group pleading, Leave it alone. While another hollers, Get it. The Darwinian members of the crowd cite natural selection. Some turn to science to explain away sympathy and ethics. Supposing the moral principles governing human behavior are secondary to the natural laws governing the universe, which function without regard for our emotional response to their effects. Still, some feel compelled to advocate for the vulnerable. Consider the collective conscience, often expressed as a unifying force, an awakening to unite humanity in shared moral commitment to place the well-being of all beings above the singular self. The abolishment of the ego to be united as a whole. What if this is all just a test? What if ethics is the ultimate experiment? Our value systems instill us with a sense of what is right and what is wrong. The golden rule is a principle found in most belief systems and instructs us to treat others the way we want to be treated ourselves. It is considered an ethic of reciprocity, an exchange for mutual benefit. If I am nice to you, I should expect you to be nice to me. And if you are not, the concept of karmic retribution suggests that you will experience consequences for being less than golden. What goes around comes around, so to speak. So, should we not always act with the highest regard for the well-being of others? In effect, it is an act of self-interest, the old altruism versus egoism debate. Which leads me into a thought experiment. Quiet your mind and think about this, listener. There's a group of people living on an isolated island. Their activities do not impact anyone in the world. The butterfly effect has been deactivated. They do not know about the world beyond what their eyes can see from their island, and its ocean as far as the naked eye allows. The world knows the island is there, and the people are on it. But we don't know what they're doing, how they're living, what their homes are like, what language they speak, their favorite color, what knowledge they have passed down of ancient societies. Nothing just that they are there. If we go to the island, they will try to kill us. And if we manage to survive their hostile rejection of our presence and make contact with them, it is more than likely we will kill them. So the question becomes, do we go to the island or do we leave them alone? Before we continue, if you have any thoughts, feel free to email me at beardedandboard at gmail.com. I'd love to hear a bunch of different perspectives on this. In my opinion, dear listener, someone is going to that fucking island. Is that a failure of this ethical test? North Sentinel Island sits among the Andaman Island in the Bay of Bengal. It is part of the Indian Union Territory of Andaman and Nicobar Island. It is under Indian protection with Indian authorities only remotely monitoring the island in respect to its people's violent rejection of contact attempts from the outside world. Survival International refers to the Sentinelese 
as one of Earth's last uncontacted people, they are among the least impacted by the connected world. Little is known of the structure of their society, however. They are classified as a hunter-gatherer tribe. The island is covered in dense forest, excluding the beachfront at the shores. The Sentinelese are believed to live on fruits that grow wild on the island, eggs from birds, and it's assumed small game as they are known to carry primitive knives, bows, and arrows. They've been observed to build small, narrow canoes maneuvered by long poles. They fish and harvest crabs in the shallow, calm waters inside the reef that serves to protect their beachfront. That same reef, you will learn, has also served up disaster for boats that sailed too close. A important aside, the Indian authorities can prosecute trespassers for visiting the island, but the authorities do not prosecute the Sentinelese for killing people who trespass on their island. Forbes author Kina Smith wrote a comprehensive record of the known history of contact with the uncontacted tribe of North Sentinel Island, titled Everything We Know About the Isolated Sentinelese People of the North Sentinel Island. The following is a chronological summary of select events extracted from Smith's article, served with the side of personal speculation. 1771. The first recorded signs of human activity on North Sentinel Island. A fire was built on the beach. An East Indian Company vessel working a hydrographic survey, measuring and scoping out the landscape possibly to improve the maps of the region, sailed past the island at night. They observed light on the shore, most likely a beach bonfire party. The vessel was on a mission without cause to approach the island, so there was no attempt made to contact the inhabitants. Nearly a century later, it is the mid-1800s, an Indian merchant ship called the Niva experienced navigation complications in the reef surrounding the island, resulting in 86 passengers and 20 crew members swimming to shore where they would stay put for three days until the Sentinelese emerged from the thicket to greet their guests with bows and arrows. The Nineveh are said to have responded with sticks and stones. Certainly no hugs were exchanged during this interaction. A Royal Navy vessel arrived to rescue the shipwrecked survivors, and in typical Imperial British style, North Sentinel Island was declared a British colony. A few decades later, it's 1880, Royal Navy officer Maurice Vittle Portman took charge of the Andaman and Nicobar colony. He had a profound interest in anthropology and was aware of the Sentinelese tribe. Heeding warning of the cautionary tale told by survivors of the Nineveh wreck, Portman embraced the theory of power in numbers, taking with him a large party of naval officers, convicts from the penal colony on Great Andaman Island, and Andamanese trackers. They traveled inland to find a village of huts, empty of inhabitants, who appeared to have evacuated quickly. Portman's search party did locate some stragglers, capturing an elderly couple and four children, who they transported back to South Andaman Island. All six of the abducted became severely sick, and quickly. The older couple died, at which time Portman decided to return the four sick children to their tribe, where assumptions can be made about the outcome. Would the tribe have accepted the children's return? 
Without knowledge of the outside world to the tribe, the children's tale upon return would have been akin to the stories told by victims of extraterrestrial abductions. What the children may have tried to describe of their observations would have been extremely difficult for others to understand. Not suggesting stupidity here, merely pointing out their lack of context. Would they have even allowed the children to explain? Or would they have refused their return, denied their re-entry into the village? The way a mother rabbit rejects a baby bunny if touched by a human. The mother leaving it to die or killing it herself. Beyond the absurdity of being extracted from the island then reappearing, the children return sick with disease unfamiliar to the Sentinelese with zero immunity against illness outside the island. We can only imagine devastating consequences. It's possible they have herbal medicine unique to what the island can provide, but unlikely a miracle cure sits quietly undiscovered by our corporations. May the gods have mercy on them if they do. The tribe may have, like the mother rabbit, recognized the threat of infection and left the children to die of their diseases. Alternatively, maybe the tribe was so relieved by the children's return that they were welcomed home with open arms. And we have already discussed how deadly a hug can be to a population unequipped with vaccines, modern medicines, or an effective immune system response. As the pre-kidnapping population of North Sentinel Island is unknown, it is impossible to estimate whether the disease ravaged the tribe or stopped at four small bodies buried on the beach. In any possible case, Portland's expedition as ambassadors to the outside world arguably did not make a positive impression on the Sentinelese people. A decade and a half later, it's 1896. An escaped convict fled the nearby Great Andaman Island penal colony on a crafty raft he fashioned from random materials he gathered. While his resourcefulness effectively allowed his escape, his freedom was short-lived as he washed ashore on North Sentinel Island, where he received a death penalty. A colonial search party found his body, riddled with arrow wounds, and his throat cut. You wonder if this criminal forgot his manners or did the Sentinelese sense danger in him? I bet the search party hurried away from the scene in as much of a rush as the escaped convict had hurried towards it. Nearly seven decades pass. It's the 1960s. A team of anthropologists led by an anthropologist named Pandit, encouraged by the Indian government, arrived on the island like Portman's party. They traveled inland to find the village of huts, empty of inhabitants who appeared to have evacuated quickly, with fires still burning. The team left gifts for the villagers, cloth, candy, and plastic buckets. However, they also stole from the villagers, bows, arrows, and baskets. These people, the Sentinelese, are not cave dwellers. They have knowledge for bows, knives, basket weaving, and boat making. There's this idea about a global mind, where once a thought is had, it goes out into the ether, and anyone else in the world can then have that thought. I've even heard this as an excuse for one stand-up comedian stealing jokes from another. Consecutive thought, they called it. Never mind that, I'm thinking about a specific example I heard about in Australia. I couldn't find a source or single article for this, so take it with a grain of salt. A cattle guard is a series of pipes that any animal with cloven hooves can't walk across. 
They're used to help keep cattle herds and sheep in specific areas, but the farmer can drive right in without needing gates between grazing areas. After years of effective use in multiple countries, one day a sheep just figured it out. It rolled across the pipes and off to freedom. A week later, independent of that first courageous bid of independence, thousands of kilometers away in South Africa, a sheep did the same thing. This South African sheep did not nor could not have any contact with the first sheep. Once a thought is had, it's in the consciousness that connects us all. This is the kind of puzzle of ancient humanity that will keep me coming back to the desk and wondering how. I will wander around for hours on the internet. Where did the Sentinelese discover basket making, bow creation, knives, boats? Is this information stored in human genetic code or were they segregated from humanity only relatively recently? This break-and-enter experience perpetrated by the anthropologists was likely unsettling for the Sentinelese. It did not warm them up to the idea of more visitors in the future. At least it was their possessions taken this time and not their people. But at this point, the outsiders, the others, were assholes. Plato's allegory of the cave offers perspective on the disparity between the reality of the Sentinelese and the incomprehensible, surreal experience sparked by the appearance of people from another realm, born to another reality, appearing and imposing their presence on the isolated island people. All things being relative and human perspective being paramount to the reality in which we live and breathe and have our being Interruptions from the outside world could be the cause of anarchy on the island. This is speculating that the Sentinelese have a story to explain their existence, their place in the universe, a creation story, and further assuming that their stories excluded the existence of outsiders. It is common to connected people of the contemporary world that our creation stories are rife with external influences and visitors from above, below, and those appearing suddenly among us. Angels, demons, gods, and devils. All by a wide variety of names and descriptions depending on the traditions you consult. Popular culture and conspiracy theories include tales of extraterrestrials invading or visiting from planets and galaxies far beyond the scope of human technology's reach. And although aliens are not a foreign concept to us, they remain a fearful concept for many. How often does Hollywood have them come in peace? Personally, my alien movie exposure has included a lot more intergalactic war than smiles and handshakes, exchanged between flesh and green scales. It is the most likely possibility that the concept of the other had not occurred to the Sentinelese until other people started sailing ships near enough to their shores to be spotted or stranded. Do you think one of the Sentinelese look out on the setting sun and dreams of exploring the world outside of everything his family has always known. Imagine the list of evils the Sentinelese would attribute to the others. Or do they see us as some kind of underdeveloped people to be cautiously tolerated? For a moment of self-reflection, what does our own list look like from a us-first-them perspective? I'm betting we win in the minds of most of us when we compare to the other. To start, I'm betting most of us would describe us as being evolved, civilized, technologically savvy, and connected. 
living a preferable way of life compared to them, the lesser evolved, uncivilized, uneducated, ignorant, and isolated primitives. All of the antonyms we attribute to them suggest inherently lesser human beings. Yet despite all we have, we can't leave anything unclaimed. In 1970, India dropped a stone tablet on North Sentinel Island, claiming it as their own. Pandit and his colleagues, with continued support from the Indian government, continued to return to the island. Although not venturing inland to the scene of their crime, they made repeated attempts to make contact with the Sentinelese people by delivering coconuts and other gifts to the beach, quickly retreating to observe the people's reaction from the safety of their ships offshore. Coconuts were not native to the island, but the Sentinelese seemed to take a liking to them, so Pandit would continue to deliver coconuts for more than two decades in hopes that he was gaining the people's favor. In time, the Sentinelese would reveal themselves, emerging from the thicket, as Pandit and his team made their delivery, but still with bows and arrows raised as a warning to not approach the people. How powerful a belief in their self-image must these people have Mechanical vehicles crossing the ocean out of the nothingness, strange clothes, powerful weapons. But they don't come on hand and knee, cowering before this might. In 1974, a National Geographic film crew joined Pendit on a visit to the island. The Nat Geo addition to The Usual Suspects made this visit particularly intense when the Sentinelese took aim at the Nat Geo director, who had the distinct displeasure of taking home a souvenir an arrow in his thigh. Arguably, this instance serves as an example of quantum physics, the observer effect, by which the mere observation of a phenomenon changes that phenomenon. This was not a typical coconut delivery. The introduction of an audience altered the outcome of the event, impacting the trust the Sentinelese felt for Pandit's people. A year later in 1975, King Leopold III of Belgium who was exiled from Belgium during World War II and later abdicated from power in 1951, was spending his retirement traveling the world in pursuit of his passion as an amateur social anthropologist. King Leopold passed North Sentinel Island on a boat tour. The king is said to have been delighted by the sight of the Sentinelese warning away his ship with arrows, to which his crew took heed and carried on without an attempt to make contact. Six years after that sighting in 1981, another shipwreck scenario occurred. Not unlike the Neva situation more than a century prior, a cargo ship called the Primrose ran aground on the reef. A crew of 28 found themselves stranded, fortunate to survive as transportation technology had evolved to include helicopters, which came to the rescue. This is why I love sci-fi. Try to imagine this from the Sentinelese perspective. Massive metal birds in the sky, thunderous in their approach. They're too big to be up there, but they are. They must be predators, here to consume the people. The very wind itself runs away as it pounds the ground with its near-invisible wings. I feel like if we could hear these stories unadulterated from their perspectives, it would be the most interesting episode of Ancient Aliens or The Twilight Zone that has ever been created.
Dozens of times in science fiction we have explored a spaceship coming down and sitting above a city. Observing. We also have our own invasion stories. We have Area 51. A spaceship crashes in the desert and humanity swarms to it. Do you think when they found the aliens they offered medical aid? Or just jump straight to the dissection and threat evaluation of them? Could we blame an alien race for hostile actions towards us, for taking apart the unknown and trying to understand? Or are they so advanced that they could walk away from their own people, firm in the belief we couldn't understand the tech or biology before us, it would have less of an impact on our development to chalk it up to a risky educational venture gone wrong? They know not what they do because they are still in the infancy of their species' existence. We are their isolated island. I wonder what would happen if a Sentinelese decided to see the world. To know where the metal birds and massive ships come from with the strange human-looking things. What would we do? Take the man, sink his boat, and hope no one else decides to leave the island to maintain this status quo we have going? What would an alien race do if we tried to leave Earth? We get past the moon and we are turned around? As if we're precocious children testing our boundaries not yet capable of mature interactions with others. We have this flaw as humans to speak to our meddling inquisitive nature that we see being advanced through the lens of technology. Looking at my keyboard and mouse, I have no idea how they work. Yes, I might be able to learn. But it would take years of education to fully be able to understand how all the parts are put together and why it works the way that it does. I would have to understand electricity, the programming, the mechanics, plastics manufacturing. And even then, I couldn't build one. Who knows? Maybe the Sentinelese maybe a remnant of an ancient form of humanity that rejected technology in that path. I'm going to ask you a question about how you would honestly feel. And I'm going to ask you not to have the knee-jerk response of right and wrong because you wouldn't want someone to hear you say something horrific. But answer me honestly, in your heart, if you found out the Sentinelese lived to 250 years old, never got Alzheimer's, never got cancer, would you approve of abducting a few human beings? Let's call them specimens. To study in controlled conditions to determine their diet and genetics and how that they live this life. No? If that's the case... That we didn't want to do that and we could just let them live their extended lifetimes? I'm telling you, it would take a vast army of people to protect them because I assure you, if the Fountain of Youth was spotted, any descendant of Ponce de Leon or Elizabeth Bathroy would cut a swath across the world at the mere chance of finding it. In a dark corner of my mind, I think I could write the propaganda that could sell the idea. If not to everyone to enough people to get the ball rolling in the court of public opinion. Good evening, everyone. I need to start off by saying I want you to understand that I know this is a tragedy. But 
we will give the Sentinelese a great life in the Biodome. They will have education, security, and everything they could possibly ever desire. Hell, I wish I could live in there. What with these hard economic times and all. Come to think of it, like, I, I know this isn't good, but this just might be the ultimate form of Darwinism. Exploiting the resources of our world gifted to us by chance to help the whole, since there is a possibility we are the only intelligent life in the universe. We are obligated to do this because we have a natural, moral imperative to keep humanity existing. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awful, right? But I don't know if I could really pass up the fountain of youth. I hope I'd be strong enough. This is all a line of thinking for another episode. What would happen if humanity could live to 200 years old or indefinitely? What would our society look like? How thin would our resources be? Back to the Sentinelese. The Sentinelese took advantage of the abandoned ship left behind, salvaging materials, namely metals, to fortify their weapons and tools. That same year, Pandit and his team increased their contact efforts to bi-monthly for the next decade. One could speculate the team saw an opportunity to expedite contact now that the tribe had access to more materials from the outside world, which may have piqued their interest in what more could be gained from the outsiders, thus opening doors to a less hostile relationship. Pandit was determined that his legacy would include the successful contact with this uncontacted people. A full decade after the helicopter rescue mission in 1991, Pandit and his team pull ashore for another routine attempt to bait the tribe into contact, when an interesting event occurs. A group of Sentinelese came to the beach to collect their gifts without weapons. This would be the closest encounter for Pandit and his team. Though at a distance, it was the first that the people came unarmed. Later that day, Pandit and his team returned to the beach to test their luck against an assembly of two dozen Sentinelese. This time there were weapons in hands. Pandit reported, A man raised his bow to aim at the visitors, and a woman pushed the bow down. The man responded by dropping the bow and arrow and burying them in the sand. As soon as the weapons were disposed of, the people rushed out to the visitors' boats to collect their coconuts. Pandit would have likely been elated by what appeared to be a peace offering. This interaction is very curious to me. They obviously respect their women from this report, but the bearing of the bow and arrow is such a powerful act of symbolism, peaceful contact by removing the weapon from existence. A few weeks later, the reception was not as reassuring. Pandit reported a Sentinelese man signaled to Pandit that it was time for the guest to leave by drawing his knife and making a cutting gesture. In an interview with the publication Indian Express, Pandit explained, If we got too close for comfort, they would turn their backs on us and sit down on their haunches, as if to defecate. This was meant to be an insult. If we didn't pay heed and stop, they would shoot arrows as a last resort. I have heard and made many Many, many poop jokes in my time. 
but this is clearly the greatest testament to their power and versatility. Well done, Sentinelese. Five years after the closest encounter in 1996, the Indian government suspended the anthropologist's visits. Pandit retired and it can be said that the Sentinelese have not had a coconut since. Do you think the kids born in 2000, that would be 20 now, would have to hear and rehear about how good the outsiders' gifts were and how great they tasted? At this point, they've got to be so annoyed. Okay, Boomer. Giant hairy tree things with milk inside. Great. I'm sure they existed. In 2004, a major tsunami devastated the region, and the Indian Coast Guard sent helicopters over the island to assess for deaths and damages. The helicopter crew reported the tribe was still present, however the total numbers of people surviving could not be determined. The Sentinelese were captured on camera, several men throwing arrows towards the helicopter. One such picture was widely circulated and sparked international interest in the Sentinelese and their little-known society. Two years later, 2006, two Indian fishermen had the misfortune of being killed by the Sentinelese when their crab harvesting boat was pushed ashore. Boiled down to the basics, Pandit's decades of gift-giving had established a routine by which outsiders arrived with material items for the tribe, and then they leave. If what they have brought ashore is their means of transportation, their ship, and therefore are without any way to leave, the visitors become collateral damage. No formal understanding had been established that outlawed the attack of outsiders. Naturally, visitors hoped against it, but it was without guarantee. Historically, humanity has devised stories and systems to explain the world around us. For all we know, the Sentinelese may believe some mighty beings, a god or multiple gods, was sending them gifts, and those that deliver them are offered as sacrifices to the cause. Kill the messenger, neutralize the threat. Alternatively, the others and the items technology that they bring to the shore is alien to the Sentinelese. Having never left the island and the waters immediately surrounding it, having survived isolation for the duration of their known existence, the occasional occurrence of visitors whose legacy includes appearing unannounced on the island by water overhead in the sky, having once abducted elderly members of the tribe along with a handful of children, it would be an alarming threat to contend with, and easy to imagine why we are not welcome. 2011, the last most recent census was conducted by Indian officials, concluding that the Sentinelese population was most likely in a range of 80 to 150 inhabitants. Based on anthropologists' estimates of how many people the island could support, however, it's also stated it could be as many as 500 or as few as 15. It's not exactly a narrow margin, all to say we have no sweet clue of the headcount. It's interesting to consider with this small of a possible population, what kind of societal norms do they have within their tribe? What are their marriage practices so that incestuous actions don't compromise their genetic profile? I wonder if in 10,000 years if we will start to show how different our evolutionary tracks are. In 2018, Survival International, uh, discussed earlier for their efforts to preserve uncontacted populations, suggested that the population to be several dozen, 
and it is then, in 2018, that we have our most recent story from the North Sentinel Island. The last known attempt at contact with the uncontacted people. In 2018, Survival International, discussed earlier for their efforts to preserve uncontacted populations, suggested that the population to be several dozen. In 2018, we have our most recent story of North Sentinel Island, the last known attempt to contact the uncontacted people. It's a delicate story, and I will try to be respectful. This sensational tale of attempted contact for the sake of salvation, American evangelical missionary John Chow paid a couple of Indian tour guides with a boat to take him to the island well aware it was an illegal act. In his diary, John referred to the Sentinelese as Satan's last stronghold. It was his intention to deliver the gospel to what he believed to be the last place for its reach. In witness statements, the tour guides reported the Sentinelese chased John away twice, and when he returned a third time, standing on the beach, singing hymns, he was killed. The third time proved to be uncharmed. His body was not recovered as the Indian government stated it was too great a danger to both the search personnel and the Sentinelese people. Ironically, John is quoted as saying, We can't just, like, go out there unprepared. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. He was speaking about the role of a missionary. A preparedness stand firm in faith with determination to share the good word despite resistance. Was this a selfless act of sharing the word of God? Or self-aggrandizement for future gains? Those megachurches in the States make a ton of money, and this would be a huge feather in the cap of a preacher. Did you hear this? Someone was telling me that Kanye West has opened up a roaming church changes locations, has a strict upscale dress code, and is invite only. The world is changing, people. Some ways, most ways, for the better. In other ways, kind of cartoonish. The Guardian International Online published an article titled The Life and Death of John Chow, The Man Who Tried to Convert His Killers. This article claims Christians were keen to disavow his actions, Well. John's father claims the American missionary community is culpable for John's death. All Nations is the name of the evangelical organization that trained John. Their leader, Dr. Mary Ho, made the following statement following the news of John's death. The privilege of sharing the gospel has often involved great cost. We pray that John's sacrificial efforts will bear eternal fruit in due season. Well, this point in the story offers a segue towards several branches of theology, epistemology, anthropology, among other ologies. I'm going to turn and talk to you, listener. Are you of the camp that uncontacted people are better left alone? Are you inclined to support the interventions on the premise of protecting vulnerable, isolated peoples? Are you fervently in favor of the study of these remote societies? Consequences be damned? Are you stocking up on coconuts and booking a boat tour? How would you feel if there was an advanced civilization with tech and philosophy that could help you? 
but chose not to because you were too underdeveloped to help. Let this settle into the back of your mind, the part that still imagines, the part that still has a spark of magic. If an unknown number of human beings are out there in the world, what else could still be out there? The things seen but not believed. This episode is a paradox. Who are we to decide? Who are we not to help? How dare we think we are so advanced that we dare interfere with another people's living their own life? How dare we not share our advancements in medical treatment and understanding of the known universe? We live in an amazing time. No library throughout history had a tenth of the knowledge contained within the internet. No literacy rate, infant mortality rate, or relative security and access to food could compare to what the first world possesses now. Throughout any known civilization throughout all of humanity, it all pales. Humanity also has the power to wipe out all living life on Earth with our nuclear arsenal and biological warfare capabilities. We haven't yet. Which I think is a huge fucking checkmark in the prose column that there is good in the world. That there are good people out there and have not and will not pull the trigger unless absolutely necessary. I love the good in humanity. And as the new year begins, maybe hold on to that for a second. It might not last, but 70 years without nuclear war is no small feat. Especially for our meddling nature. On the negative end of a civilization our size is that our society is dealing with addictions and distractions that have stalled our growth. People are addicted to cell phones so badly, there is built-in filters for taking pictures of your fucking food. I recently found in the settings of my phone a digital well-being data collection. It will tell you how many times you opened your phone during the day, how much time you've spent using it, which apps, and how long you've used those apps. There's even settings for winding down your day with, with dimmer settings. <sighs> Cities are having to add padding to lampposts for people so caught up in texting, they slam into them walking. Listener, do yourself a favor and YouTube texting and walking fails. It's really, really funny. There are even countries experimenting with embedded lights in their sidewalks to have a better chance of catching the eye of distracted pedestrians wandering into traffic. Identity crisis is commonplace. Imposter syndrome balanced with fake it till you make it. Because there is no jobs and we all just went to school because we were supposed to. Debt so bad there's talk about hereditary mortgages, anxiety and depression, wars over resources and ideology, the subjugation of women, human trafficking, a lot... We'll call that one what it is. Slavery. 2020 enslavers roam our world kidnapping people. But would I ever walk away from this world and into the wilds? Not for more than a month. If it was in a cabin that had functioning plumbing, maybe two months. I lack ambition and motivation. I wouldn't likely be welcome in any tribe more than a few weeks as I kick rocks 
and try to explain Star Wars plots and the difference between the true canon versus the retcon Disney books, I don't think they'd appreciate it. I think the real danger of putting me out in the woods for too long without civilization, I might write a manifesto. Seeing how I consider the bare minimum of a civilization is to have Uber Eats and I don't currently live in a city with it, let's just keep our fingers crossed my podcast stays as innocent and happy-go-lucky as I intended. Disregard all that. Does it scare you that our progress as a society, our moral understanding is always behind what we are capable of? We want to explore the stars. We want to create artificial intelligence We want to explore the unknown. But we can't even connect with the human beings that haven't been around for Netflix and Facebook. In Star Trek, there is a single rule that surpasses any and all other laws, rules, and guidelines. It's called the Prime Directive. If you are to explore the stars, you must adhere to this rule no matter if you are the cook or the captain. All who join Starfleet must adhere to this rule. The Prime Directive prohibits Starfleet personnel and spacecraft from interfering in the normal development of any society, and mandates that any Starfleet vessel or crew member is expendable to prevent violation of this rule. As the right of each sentient species to live in accordance with its normal cultural evolution is considered sacred, no Starfleet personnel may interfere with the normal and healthy development of alien life and cultures. Such interference includes introducing superior knowledge, strength, or technology to a world whose society is incapable of handling such advantages wisely. Starfleet personnel may not violate this prime directive even to save their lives or their ship, unless they are acting to right an earlier violation or accidental contamination of said culture. This directive takes precedence over any and all other considerations and carries with it the highest moral obligation. Think about that. If there is a chance that you could affect a society with your presence, you might be asked to kill yourself. Let's say there is a space disaster, your engines falter close to an uncontacted planet. You can get yourself out of there, no problem, but by extracting your ship, you will reveal the presence of the outside universe to those people and the existence of aliens thereby influencing thought and philosophy, even religion, of an entire species. You are expected to kill yourself and everyone around you to protect their right to self-development. It is a moral obligation. The creation of the Prime Directive is generally credited to original series producer Gene L. Kuhn. The Prime Directive reflected a political view that U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was an example of a superpower interfering in the natural development of Southeast Asian society. The creation of the Prime Directive was perceived as a repudiation of that involvement. It's funny, growing up with the Prime Directive, how many times over the course of all these different series and shows, I have seen that rule bent, broken, or disregarded out of hand. Captain Catherine Janeway, the best character in that entire universe, by the way, was well known for how many times she broke the directive. But it was true to the fiction, and when she did it, it held major, terrible consequences. The American psyche must have shifted a little over the years with the reboot franchise 
it's an awesome couple of movies, but uh, in the new ones, Kirk tries to detonate a bomb in a volcano to save a planet and the species that lives on it, which in itself is wrong because that was the natural way the world would have progressed. It's a success, but rather than allow Spock to die, he breaks the Prime Directive again to save him. He reveals the existence of Starfleet to the villagers. Over and over again, it's been shown as a cowboy or rogue moral choice to help in spite of the rule. I don't know if I could stand by if I knew that I could help. But maybe my psychology is just too underdeveloped to really wield the power of God and save a world on a whim. I struggle to brush my teeth on days I know I don't have to leave the house. If you want the most comprehensive, intriguing, strangely darkly beautiful version of the Prime Directive, you have to watch the show The Orville. It's by the creator of Family Guy of all people, Seth MacFarlane. Folks, this man understands sci-fi. He has seen the worlds I have and come back with a snarky take that has heart. I'm thinking specifically of season one episode, Mad Idolatry. Mad Idolatry is seeing the repercussions of contacting uncontacted people before they are ready, which results in war and death and blood on their hands because of their actions. Thank you for coming on this journey with me to the unknown parts of our world, to see those that have been left innocent in the craze of our world. Do you have a question or comment? Reach out to The Midnight Owl at our Instagram, The Midnight Owl Podcast, or email me at beardedandboard at gmail.com. B-E-A-R-D-E-D-A-N-D-B-O-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you, Kat. This script was a lot of fun to play with. Thank you, listener, for your time. I hope you have an amazing day and fantastic year. Just don't forget to take a second. An owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. While some feel whimsical imagining a unicorn sighting thrilled to witness the mystery and magic they represent, others would for sure sharpen their scalpels to dissect the beast in an aim of scientific explanation for the mythical creature's horn. What is it made out of? And what makes them sparkle? Here was a quick note from... Here was a quick note from Cat. Tim... In my imagination, unicorns sparkle. I think it's an implanted idea from childhood. A lot of exposure to My Little Pony. So if sparkling doesn't resonate with your ideas about unicorns, I understand. But the sparkles really do make them something special. So if yours don't currently sparkle, give it a try. I feel obligated to respond to this, cat. I am, of course, not a monster. And unicorns definitely sparkle. Maybe they're just from another plane and that's just our eyes way of trying to comprehend something that's not quite there.
What do you think, listeners? Do unicorns sparkle? Why do I wonder? Why 